I'm here with Andrew Dubber, who is a faculty member of the Birmingham City University School of Media. He is an internationally renowned lecturer, author, consultant, public speaker, broadcaster, and blogger, as well as being the founder of New Music Strategies and a member of the Board of Advisors for Bandcamp. Andrew is also the author of three Lean Pub books, all of which have been published in 2012. We're going to talk today about his books, his experiences as a writer, and about his experiences using the Lean Publishing approach on Lean Pub. We're also going to talk about ways we could improve LeanPub for him. So, Andrew, thanks for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for having me. So, your title is Reader in Music Industries Innovation. What's it like being a professor of innovation in an industry that's being violently disrupted? Yeah, it's kind of weird. I mean, read, reader is a funny term. It's, it's one yeah. that really only makes sense over here. It basically means almost but not quite smart enough to be a professor. Um, oh, okay. But, like such a lecturer? Uh, sort of. It's uh, In the US, I would be called a professor. I have a full-time job, I have a teaching gig, all the rest of it. But here, it's like becoming a you know a knight or a lord or something. Ah, okay. So what's, but, it, like, um, so what's it like teaching about um, innovation in the music industry? Uh, it's, it's kind of fun, actually, I've got to say. I mean, because you run into some really interesting conversations. But what's really cool is... The people who come to study with us, uh, I, do, I run an MA in music industries, um, and the people who come to study with us know what they're in for. Um, so in, in a sense, the, the kind of people who sign up to our MA are the kind of people who go, actually, I don't want to learn about how the music industry used to be. I want to learn how it is now, which is kind of what I focus on more than anything. But it is kind of, you know... Um, I mean, the music industry uh, shifts slowly, so um, it's it's one of those things where it's an analysis of uh, what's not going on as much as it is an analysis of of what could be. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I know it's funny. We um, we know I know an academic uh, in Vancouver who does work in the publishing in a master's program in publishing, and it's the same sort of environment where, like, um, you know, publishing is in the middle of being going through a lot of changes, right? And the students who are in there are kind of like they're master students and they're sort of have the same sort of mindset. You have to, because it's so much change. Um, well, that, that's kind of the interesting stuff that's going on really is, is, you know, sort of getting to gross. Uh, that's one of the good things about being an academic, I guess you can step back from it and go, okay, what is it actually going on and what are people doing about it? And what do they say they're doing as opposed to what they're actually kind of performing? So that, that sort of arm's length analysis can be really interesting, but also the students that I work with, um, they have a really hands-on approach, and so most of them are actually sort of working quite uh, substantially within the music industries as well, particularly from a kind of a independent entrepreneurial perspective. Do you, so they're actually so they are actually entrepreneurial. That's that's inter That's good. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of one of one of the things that I really push. I mean, in fact, uh, as part of our MA, uh, there is a, a kind of a core module within it called enterprise, and basically that's that's what you study as part of. Uh, it's it's kind of related to some other MAs that we do. Uh, around creative industries and um, online journalism and, and various other things. Mm. But uh, inter enterprise is a really kind of strong thread in our MA. I sound like I'm shilling for our MA program. No, no. Come, it's do, just... come and do our MA. <laughs> no, I was, just, I was just curious because it was funny. It was like when I was talking to some of the students in this publishing program, there was a mixture of sort of typical student optimism, but then also just massive depression about, well, I probably never get a job in this industry. Or I'm like, well, would you like to do some freelance, like, stuff involving lean pub and you know like you you, you see that you sense the sort of trepidation but yeah 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 I, I always always say to my students anybody who aspires to a job in the music industry lacks ambition 
Because I think the most interesting stuff is where people find their own niche, they find their own kind of thing that they're excited about. I mean, nobody gets into the music business because they think it's a great get-rich-quick scheme. Right. You know, that's, that's the wrong reason to do it. But if you're really passionate about music, there are ways in which you can make money at it, and most of them don't involve uh, sitting in the basement at Universal Music putting CDs in envelopes. Right. So, besides, yeah, getting along that line, besides teaching at Birmingham University, you're also involved in a lot of projects. Um, tell me about New Music Strategies. Well, New Music Strategies actually started as a blog about five years ago, actually more, more like six years ago, um, when I first started studying this, because I didn't sort of start studying the online music industries. I started actually studying radio and digital radio and online radio, but I kind of, uh, when I shifted to the UK about eight years ago, it was kind of coincided with a shift in focus. Uh, I kind of do both now, essentially, but the um, New Music Strategies was a blog in which I was kind of thinking out loud about the research that I was doing and also the, the music industries that I was working with and the sort of innovation stuff we were doing. So I was just kind of, um, here is something interesting, let me share it with you. And at the time, there were very few uh, independent music industry blogs around. And so kind of New Music Strategies picked up a bit of a following, particularly because I wrote this, um, well, I put it out as an ebook, but essentially it was just a series of blog posts. And I, I made it as a PDF download free from the website, and uh, and people downloaded it and shared it around. There was really kind of nothing else like that uh, at the time. Now every man and his dog's got a blog about you know giving advice to independent musicians. So um, over time, new music strategies doing that became less important. But I'd kind of worked with some really cool and really interesting people while I was um, sort of operating under that name. And so what I did is I approached them and said, well, okay, New Music Strategies doesn't really need to be an advice blog for online music. You know, people can find that stuff now. And I kind of feel like I've said what I needed to say in that sphere a little bit. So why don't we just get together and do stuff when it's cool and interesting? And so there's five of us. There's, um, there's a woman in Amsterdam. There's a woman in Berlin. Uh, there's a guy in Oxford. Uh, there was a guy in London. He's now moved to Birmingham where I live as well. And me. So the five of us, uh, we just kind of, try and think of interesting things to do, uh, cool organizations to partner with, and then we try and make things happen, which is about, not, not about kind of, you know, how can I be famous on the internet, but more about how can we get uh, more music by more people in more places. Um, and that sort of manifests itself in all sorts of kind of interesting ways. That's, that's cool. Um, yeah, you, so you mentioned, obviously, the blog posts uh, around new music strategies and how those led to your book, you know, The 20 Things You Must Know About Music Online. So tell me how that um, evolved into music in the digital age and what made you, yeah, let's just go with that for starters. Sure. Well, uh, the 20 things you must know about music online was just a series of 20 blog posts originally. I mean, I, I got asked to come and do a talk locally um, and uh, they said, oh, just come and tell us the things that you think we need to know about the online music business because, you know, you're studying it and we're not and we're trying to sort of make money at this. And so I wrote a, a kind of a, a bullet point list and I went with it and I sort of stood up and said the first one and then got on to the second one. And by the time I got into the third one, they said, well, we're kind of out of time now. Uh, so so um, I, I said, well, what I'll do is I'll stick them up as blog posts and you can just read them as you, as you want to. And somebody said to me, well, I don't really want to come and read your blog. Um, can, I, uh, can I just get it as a PDF and you send it to me when it's done? I thought, well... That's actually fair enough, so uh, and not a bad idea. So um, that's what I did: is I kind of wrote the twenty things as blog posts, bundled them up into an ebook, stuck it up online. But like I say, that that was about five years ago, and ever since then, people have been asking me, "Oh, when's the update coming? Or, or uh, is there a new version of it? Or does it still kind of do what you wanted it to do?" And, I've, and 
within about 18 months of me publishing it, um, I kind of felt it needed revisiting. And I've, I've kind of had that at the back of my mind for a long time. And every time I've tried to address it, I've never really kind of got the recipe right. I've tried to do, you know, 20 more things and I've tried to do uh, the 20 things updated and I've tried to do, you know, sort of different approaches to it. I even tried to do one that was uh, turning those 20 things into actual strategies. You, you should do this rather than here is something to know. Mm. And it never really kind of felt like it worked um, but then I was doing a talk in, uh, in the Netherlands, and uh, one of the guys at it said, um, what would the book be like if you wrote it now? And I thought, well, that's a good question. I hadn't actually thought about that, because there, there wouldn't be 20 things. There'd only be one. Right. And that, that one thing is this idea of um, the internet as a conversational medium. The Kind of the way I put it in the book is, this is a conversation. And that came, became the starting point of what, in fact, when I when I first started writing it, it was called The One Thing You Must Know About Music and Everything Else Online, um, which was a bit of a mouthful. But actually, because I ended up writing, I'm writing another book for a, for a traditional publisher, uh, an academic book uh, called Radio in the Digital Age. I thought it'd be nice to kind of have that mirror image and just call it Music in the Digital Age. So I've started there and I've written this kind of, here is my idea about uh, music as a, con- uh, sorry, the internet as a conversational medium. And while I'm at it, what the hell, let's, let's revisit the 20 things, but within the context of a larger book, which I'm still kind of in the process of writing. So I've kind of got those bits out of the way. Here is what I think about the internet, particularly as it relates to music. And here is uh, me just going back to that book and, and saying, you know what, here's what I think about that now. And now I kind of feel like I've, I've kind of removed those shackles and I can move on and publish the next bit now. Right. Yeah, actually, going back to the, back to the shackles for a minute, um, I was actually when I read when I read through uh, music in the digital age and I was looking and comparing that with um, twenty things you must know. Uh, I was trying to figure out whether you think it makes sense to. So, are you assuming in music in the digital age that someone has familiarity with the previous one, or or would you think it would be like when you in the part of the musical in the di- music in the digital age where you write addressing the twenty things and referencing what you'd previously said. Um, whether that makes sense to go, like, whether you think the best thing to do is start fresh or whether, like, like assume that, um, yeah, I kind of struggled with that. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, like so many of the, so many of the things start with, well, I said this five years ago and it's kind of relates, but, and I was like thinking, Hmm, I'm like, you know what I'm saying? Right. You know where I'm getting at? Yeah. 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 Cause I, I, I did struggle with that. I thought, well, do I repeat myself or do, and actually what I ended up deciding is, you know, what the hell I'll just put, the 20 things book up on lean pub as well. And if people want to look, I've already written it. Yeah. You know, they, they can just look at that and they can have it for, you know, for nothing. And, and that's fine. So if it's, it kind of feels like you don't need no. the 20 things book. If you have read the 20 things book, uh, then this will make sense. And if you want to read the, tw- cause I say, you know, well, in the original book, I said this, but this is what I kind of feel about it now. Right. And you go, really? He said that. Let's go and have a look and see what he actually said in detail. And you can read the whole thing if you want to, cause it's all just there. And I thought, in fact, one of the things that I thought of doing was um, uh, 20 Things 2.0, right. um, which, which actually takes the, the individual things, the individual chapters from the first one, and then intersperses the update version, and actually having that as a different edition, if you like. Yeah. And I, I haven't decided not to do that yet. I just haven't done it yet. Yeah, something that assumes, like, that, that, assumes that the, like, like has one paragraph saying, 
by the way, this is an old, this, the old version exists here, but let's just ignore it from now on and just go from scratch and just talk about the ideas rather than the relationship of the old ideas to the new ideas. It's, yeah, I know what you mean. I think there's but, but the fun, okay, here's, here's the fun bit. With something like LeanPub, I can play with these ideas. Yeah. And I, and I can just kind of change my mind about it or I can put things up and I can experiment. And if it doesn't work, then I'll just kind of, you know, that's fine to leave it there. I've, I mean, I've published books, uh, that, I imagine that nobody will ever want to read, and um, and when people do, it's it's thoroughly gratifying. And and but the the thing is, you've got the opportunity to kind of play with it and test things as you develop them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we that's the whole idea of lean publishing, right? Is being able to publish while you're writing, you know, and get feedback from actual people who are invested, like literally invested because they paid money for the thing and they want it to be good, right? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, like even that thing on pricing um, it has been a complete, you know, sandbox for me all the way along. What what is my book worth to people? Um, and I, I sort of come to some sort of weird decisions about that. And the less I charge for it, the more people seem to want to pay, <laughs> which is which is kind of nice. Well, I, I like that we both independently came up with uh, sliders. Um, yeah, because it yeah. seems like the the new the the slider is the new text input for how much yeah. something should cost. I, I think so because and and the, actually there's there's something I've seen I can't remember where I saw it but I'd I'd really love to do it is um, that as you move the slider to the right it, the, there's a frowny face that turns into a happy face. <laughs> we were joking uh, about having a plate of food about how you move it to the right you get like food like a better dish and like you know like, like a glass of wine and stuff and then you move to the left it turns into like a hamburger and like you know half eaten hamburger. Yeah. That's 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 kind of cool. I like, um, but but my uh, my tech skills are fairly limited, and I've got a friend who helps me out, but it's really just kind of a favor. So uh, I thought just a nice simple slider would be the way forward. Right. Um, so let's talk a bit some about some of the ideas in the in the book. Um, you've written about the relationship of music and commerce. Uh, tell me about that. Well, here, here's the thing. I think people have this really weird idea that uh, music as culture and music as commerce are in opposition to each other. Uh, that you know, if you if you know, if you add the commercial element to something, it, it ruins it. Or uh, if you just think about music as culture, you haven't understood its commercial potential or whatever. But the way I, I kind of step back from that and go, well, actually. Music is culture, but culture is just what people say, make, and do. That's that's all culture means. Right. And commerce is a subset of what people say, make, and do. And so music being commerce is part of music being culture. And it actually pays to understand the broader uh, cultural aspects of music in order to be able to make the most of it from a commercial perspective. Because music makes money for people to the extent that music makes meaning for people. And I think the same could be said about books, too, actually. The more meaningful they are in people's lives, for whatever reason, whether it's identity or memory or, you know, whatever it is, um, the more those things will link into how many copies you'll sell. And that's true of music, it's true of books, it's true of all sorts. Yeah, that's why, like, when you talk about music being a conversation, about the, the one idea about things being a conversation, how you see, like, you know, releasing music and then interacting with your listeners and releasing a book and interacting with your readers. Um, you know, the same type of idea, obviously. Um, yeah, I, I think that's uh, the kind of the, the analogy breaks down a little there because I think what, what musicians, what writers do is they write books, right? Yeah. Uh, but what musicians do 
making recordings is such a tiny part of what they do. Th mm. This activity of, of being a musician, of, of you know, what uh, Christopher Small calls musicking, right. um, isn't kind of reducible to locking yourself in a dark, windowless, airless room for three months while you kind of make these idealized versions of what you think your song should sound like and then sort of selling them as commodities. That's, that's kind of a small part of it. And I think what's really interesting about uh, the, the online environment is you have an opportunity to kind of find other ways for people to make meaning from what you do and find other ways for them to give you money for that. Hmm. Yeah, and in terms of like interacting with your fans, like how do you think the use of say things like Twitter differs between like writers and musicians? Well, I think the Twitter is really interesting because people think of it as a technology, whereas I think the more you use it, the more the technology kind of disappears and you start to realize it's just human beings having conversations with each other. Right. And I think so, so this kind of, this idea that, oh, I've got, this is my online strategy, I'm going to use Twitter and I'm going to use Facebook, is like saying, well, this is my direct mail strategy, I'm going to use pens and paper. <laughs> um, you know, so is, what are you going to say is the kind of the more important part and how are you going to engage with people? And I think the, the fact that the online environment is a conversational space means, all right, well, then I'll have conversations. How do you have conversations? Well, you listen to people, you join in, you, you know, you don't stand in a chair and shout, look at me, I'm amazing. I kind of think, like, the, as a social space, um, Twitter's kind of quite a bit like a bar, really. Um, and you can kind of join in conversations, or you can hang back, or you can just say things to yourself in the corner, or you can stand on a chair and shout about how amazing you are. And you know, this kind of retweeting praise thing's really interesting. It's like, hey, did you hear what this guy said about me? He says, I'm awesome. You know, and it's like, <laughs> you just wouldn't do that in that social situation. So if, it's that kind of... When you think about the online environment as a, as a conversational space, you actually, and this is why I, I said you only really need to know the one thing about music online, because actually all those 20 other things follow logically from there. If you think about it as being a conversational space, you're not going to screw it up. Right, yeah, I'm really guilty of the retweet stuff about LeanPub. When people say nice things about LeanPub, it's like retweet, and it's like, yeah, so I do, I, I guess I do lots of the standing on the chair telling you that. <laughs> Yeah, but I guess you, you've got something to push, right? You've got something to market. And it's kind of it's a weird space to be in because, I mean, uh, being an organization is not the same as being a band. Right. Um, and, yeah, it's kind of it's funny. You know, you, you, you get these banned Twitter accounts uh, that you don't know who's talking. You don't know whether it's the drummer or the singer or the, you know, the, 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 the cute guy or the, you know, whatever. Um, and, and so there's this kind of faceless corporate entity just going, we're amazing, check out our video, you know, look at our, our stat, you know, and it just kind of, there's nothing engaging about that. And actually it turns into something quite boring quite quickly. Right. Um, I think if you're, if you're an organization, if you're a company, there is kind of a, there's a, there's a reason to have a, a corporate authorial voice, I guess. Um, but, but if you're, if, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it might be different for small organizations. I kind of like the idea of Peter from Lean Pub yeah, tweeting. Yeah, I mean, Scott and I both tweet. Lean Pub, you know? Yeah, yeah we, we, we have, like, I tweet stuff, Scott tweets stuff. We have our Lean Pub one, but it's weird. I mean, we have that, so for, like, stuff like, hey, we've had a problem with our book generator or whatever, or sometimes we re Lean Pub quite often retweets the nice things people say, but, you know, Scott and I tend to do things more individually as well. And I, I, I as long as we met, I think Lean Pub, for me, it's kind of like, Wendy, when is, like, it, the account kind of functions like a tag, right? Like, if you say something about at LeanPub, then LeanPub is involved, and you know it's like you exactly, know. yeah, it becomes it becomes part of the conversation, and there's an opportunity to engage as an organization. I mean, we've got a we've got a New Music Strategies account. Unfortunately, New Music Strategies is too long right. to be a Twitter name. So, where this is in MS, 
and uh, but the, this is NMS account almost never tweets because we just you know because we're, like Steve Lawson and uh, me particularly. I mean, Steve Lawson tweets more than any person alive. Hmm. Uh, you know, you follow him on Twitter, and you got to be prepared to kind of you know balance that with other people. You actually start following more just so it doesn't seem like it dominates quite so much. But he says some really, really cool and interesting stuff. But we look at the uh, the kind of the, the corporate, if you like, in inverted commas, new music strategy Twitter account and go, not really sure what to say there. Right. So it's it's funny because we're just sort of we're we're a group of individuals who happen to work together, but we we have our own voice. And and I guess you know if we were in a bar. You know, we would have conversations with people that might be about new music strategies, but aren't from new music strategies, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's what you're talking about in your book, Music in the Digital Age, how the digital age compares to the electric age, right? It's the same, same yeah, yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and the electric age is all about broadcasting. It's, right. it's all about, you know, um, make one, sell many. It's about... Um, centralized uh, production and then mass distribution. It's, you know, it's recordings, it's broadcasting. Whereas the, the digital age, I think the thing that sort of characterizes it is that it puts that within a conversational space. I mean, Marshall McLuhan says this thing about um, the content of any new medium as its predecessor. So people think they're kind of watching TV on the internet or they're reading newspapers online or whatever. Those aren't TV, that's, you know, it's not TV, it's not newspapers, that's the internet, and actually it's a completely different context when it's within there, and it's, they become social objects, which is something that I'm going to talk more about in the book, um, but they become the things about which the conversation takes place. So I think the kind of the two main ingredients on the internet are the conversation and the things about which the conversation takes place, and, and the way that you have success with music, uh, if, if you want to sort of distribute it and get it out there is the extent to which it makes significant meaning for people to want to take it and, and have conversations about it. You know, being shared is more important than being, you know, distributed, if you like. Hmm. Speaking of that, um, one idea when I was reading through your book is t twigged the idea for me of, you know, the notion of digital native and I've, that's gotten bandied around a lot lately. Do you think that's like a legitimate and valuable term or do you think it's sort of full of itself and like overblown? It's a valuable term in, in the sense that it, it kind of distills a really simple idea, um, but it's not actually descriptive of anything real in the world. Right. Um, it, it's it's one of those things where you say, oh, "I'm a digital native." It just means I, I know how to use computers. Yeah. You know, which, which you know, it's like it's like saying I'm a driving native. Well, no. I, I, in terms of the idea that people who are, I, I've I've heard the stupid version, which is like people who were born basically like I don't know after Google or after Facebook or whatever somehow like are magically since they've for their entire lives these things have existed they somehow understand digital things better than people who you know were born yeah, but that's, before google and is that's and, true of any technology though i mean like there's a there's a great douglas adams line about you know anything that uh was invented before you were born as part of the natural order of things anything that was born between your birth and the age of 30 is something you could probably get a job in and you could learn and, and become quite competent at anything right. after that is of the devil Right. And and that's that's kind of but that's true no matter when you were born. Um, yeah. But I think that that I mean I'm 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 going to be forty five this year, so um, I'm not on paper a digital native. But actually, I've been using computers like immersed in computers for the last twenty years. And I'm not a computer programmer. I'm not a you know I'm not a code monkey. I'm not a um, you know a technical person. I, these these are just tools that I happen to have found useful and have used a lot over the last twenty years. And so. I'm a digital native in the sense that this is where I spend all my time. But 
it's the the point at which I mean, digital's not interesting. It's like saying you're an electric native. Right. You know, it's it's what you. It's like that thing about driving. It's uh, you don't just kind of press the button and pull the lever and look in the mirror and indicate and pull out and you know turn the handle or whatever. Um, you just drive to your friend's place. Once the technology disappears, it just becomes the way in which you do things. So, in a sense, that that kind of makes you native, but at the same time, that, that means that the technology is not the interesting bit. Being digital is no more interesting than being electric. Right. Um, but it's just you know, what do you do? How do you communicate? And how do you kind of you know get on with other human beings? No, that makes sense. So, speaking of tools and how you use digital tools, how did you find out? about LeanPub and what made you try it? Uh, actually, it was one of my colleagues at the university suggested it. He, um, he works in the music um, department. Well, he's, we, we've got different music departments. I, I kind of teach music industries within a media faculty. Um, but uh, there's um, some really good research going on uh, in our conservatory as well. Um, who do kind of the composition of music and, and performance of music. Uh, and there was a guy there who just, we were talking about um, online publishing. He said, well, have you tried LeanPub? And I, no. <laughs> so I had a look. Um, and I actually ticked all my boxes when I sort of went there, and, and it just seemed to kind of do the trick. Huh, cool. Um, so tell me about your third LeanPub book, How to Make Wishes That Come True. Yeah, that was kind of interesting. I I got a friend, uh, Steph, who now lives in London, who's... Um, one of the most uh, remarkable, uh, imaginative, creative uh, people that I know, but who was also a really amazing coder and has been involved in startups and, and so on. And we did this thing uh, for a while on a Friday. We just, you know, once a month on a Friday, we'd get together and we'd try and do a startup in a day, like an online, uh, and just sort of build it, release it into the wild and just see what the world made of it. And then if we got bored with it, we'd, you know, if it took off, we'd, we'd work on it. And if we got bored with it, you know, it would just... Yeah. Sort of wither and die. And there were a few that uh, that we did that were quite interesting, but one of the ones that we did that we liked was one called ISO Wish. And what ISO Wish was essentially, it started out well. Let's just get people uh, can make wishes on the website. The end. You know, it's like I wish I had a pony and publish, and then it would go up on the and it would be a big stream of people making wishes, and then. People said, well, I want to do things with these wishes. And then other people said, well, actually, you know what? That person who wished that, I can actually grant that wish for them. And we thought, there's something interesting here. Um, and so we actually spent a little bit more time on it. We developed it a bit more and uh, got it to the point where um, it was real community. I mean, it, was, it wasn't huge, but we had quite, you know, several hundred people were posting and were you know, helping each other out. And then we could sort of – we were granting – you know, points for people who were particularly helpful to people. So rather than just being uh, and sort of this idly wishing things, um, we we actually made a community where the, the whole point of it was to try and grant other people's wishes. And, and it was a really cool thing to do. Like, for instance, one woman uh, uh, posted, you know, she wished that she lived in the U.S. and she was in the U.K. And this guy from the States said, well, actually, I've got all these uh, spare air miles. Why don't you use those? Come over and check out some properties. And so, like, stuff like that was happening, really kind of, and some of it was really sort of moving stuff, people in in tragic situations and people coming together and really helping them. So it was a really exciting thing. Of course, neither of us had the money or the time or the energy to sort of spend on it. And it's sad. I mean, I'd I'd really love to revisit it later, but it it sort of withered and died. But the the really cool thing about it was it sparked a whole lot of other things. And um, we were sort of kicking around ideas about, you know, what we could contribute to it, what we could do, and... and, um, I, I, for, I can't remember why, but I spent 24 hours in bed sick, um, but still conscious enough to, to write something. So I said to Steph, well, since I'm stuck here anyway, I'll just I'll see if I can write an e-book. 
and we can sell that on the website. Everybody seemed to like the ebook that I did on uh, New Music Strategies. Mm. Let's do one for here. But I didn't want it to be this kind of wishy-washy, you know, because it's a book about wishes. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, very quickly go down that really kind of dodgy path of, oh, if you just close your eyes and mm-hmm. wish hard enough, the universe will grant you everything you want, which is, you know, which is nonsense. Um, but I thought, well, actually, if you think about it right, wishes are just kind of, it's just goal setting. It's like, I want the world to be in this way. It's not yet. How do I go about doing that? And so what I did is rather than saying, you know, here is a goal setting workshop uh, or saying, or oh, here's, you know, a book about you know, wishes and fairies and pixies and whatever. Um, it was, all right, here's how to make wishes that come true. And that was the kind of the, the core. This is like real wishing. This is the way that I want the world to be. I, you know, I wish I, you know, whether it's lose weight or, you know, get a particular job or have an amount of money or, you know, write a book or whatever it is, you know what it is you want to have about the world to be true that isn't true at the moment. Okay, so how you make wishes that come true is you you start with the wish, you make sure it's a good one, and make sure it's one that's kind of real and practical and achievable and measurable and all the things people tell you that goals should be, but then you actually set in place steps that take you towards that and it's in that sense it's real kind of basic goal setting workshop stuff but um but it is a workshop it's like all right here's how to make wishes here's how to make really cool wishes and here's how to make really cool wishes that come true if you actually kind of uh, are a bit real about wishes rather than just you know i wish i had a pony with you know uh whatever pink tassels right yeah actually i was typing something i just wanted to dig up i just retweeted something i saw it um from way back in 2006, Tim O'Reilly, sorry, Tim O'Reilly tweeting something from, I think Werner Vogels is his name, I was just afraid I was going to butcher it, about how Amazon does um, like products and the notion of starting by writing the press release and then backing out to FAQ and thinking about that kind of sort of the sort of company version of the same thing about thinking about what does this look like when it's done and yeah. describe exactly like why, like, you know, describe the thing completed and then backing out to thinking, well, how do you get there, right? And you know, obviously, it's a different. But that's just that's that's just you know, it's project management, it's Gantt yeah. charts, it's you know, it's all that sort of stuff. It's like, where do you want to end up? When do you want to end up there? What has to be true before that happens? What right. has to be true before that? So you know, you can just kind of take the steps backwards, and it's not like I say, uh, it, it's the furthest thing from magic. But as soon as you put the word wishes in the title, people are going to get the the wrong idea. So it's not the greatest piece of marketing in the world, and it's not a terribly successful book either. Um, but I, I think it's, it's one that I'm quite pleased with all the same because I, I think it does actually take you through this this process. And, and it's been particularly like, – there's some friends of mine have used it for, for things like losing weight or, or – um, in fact, one of them used it for writing a book, right. um, which which was just, you know, these are the things that I want to be true in this amount of years and uh, and I'm going to go and set out and do it now. Yeah, yeah, just working backwards. That's nice. I like that. Um, okay, actually, back to music in the digital age. So um, it's been translated into a lot of languages or being translated into a lot of languages already. So tell me about that and how the process is going and – well, that's that's been really cool. I mean, um, when I put out twenty things you must know about music online, a few people approached me and said, "Can I translate this into my language?" And I went, "Yeah, knock yourself out. Fine, help yourself." Um, and so they would go away for six months and then and come back and go, "I did it," and then they'd present it to me, and I'd go, "Cool," put it up on my website. Um, but what I thought would be good this time because I, I want the book to almost be an experiment in the kind of things that I talk about. So. Um, I said, well, if anybody wants to translate this book, let's translate it as we go. You've got the opportunity with, with LeanPub 
to publish in progress. Why, why can't we just translate it in progress as well? I'll write the next bit. I'll publish that. You translate it. When that's ready, we'll publish that. And it will just kind of tick along. And I thought, I wonder how many languages I could probably do. And so I sort of went through a list of, you know, A, the people I know who speak other languages to start mm-hmm. with. Um, and then B, what are the most commonly spoken languages in the world? And I ended up with a list of sort of between 25 and 30. And uh, of those so far, I've got 20 underway. And five of them, I think, are already in the state ready to be published. There are some that are kind of people just getting started now. But I've got uh, a Greek version, uh, a German version, um, what have I got? Uh, Spanish, Portuguese, yeah. and Estonian up on the website already. Um, Dutch is almost ready to go. Um, there's a few others kind of just waiting in the wings. And, um, and and just as it happens. But there's no rush. I mean, that's the, the thing about this is when people are ready, um, we can put it up. But what I've done is to try and make it worth people's while, because I can't pay them to go and do translations. Mm-hmm. But if people are giving me money, it would be, you know, churlish of me not to share it. So what I've said is if you want to translate it, into your language, uh, if whatever we sell of your language version, I'll just split you 50-50. Right. You know? and, that, and that people seem happy with that, because not because they think they're going to make lots of money out of it, but because that seems fair. Right. Yeah, actually, I have a question about translation. So since you're translating as you, since it's being translated as you're writing it, have you found that um, in-progress translation has affected the development of the original, like in terms of if, so, if one of your translators, say, asks like, to clarify the idea, certain ideas or how yeah, totally, totally. translates. Yeah, there's, in fact, there's a chapter in the book that I had not thought of writing because the way in which I describe something doesn't kind of make sense uh, in translation to every language, which is this idea of media. Because in English, media is the plural of medium. Right. But it all, there's also this thing called the media, right. which, which is a kind of a single entity. So I actually ended up, rather than trying to explain it each time to the translators as they came across it, I ended up writing a chapter that said, you know, when I say media, this is what I mean. This is how I think about it. But actually, that turned out to be a really helpful clarification. And, and in fact, that's what I've had the most feedback about. That was really helpful because all of the other stuff you talked about, I kind of had a vague idea of what you meant. But because, of, of course, I've got all these ideas. I'm, a, I'm in a media studies department. I've been studying media for the last, you know, 12 years or whatever. And I, I understand what I think of as media, but I don't ex- explain it very well. I sort of start as this, you know, well... The, the, the digital media are these things and the electric media are these things. And if you're, what do you mean media? Mm-hmm. Um, then you have to actually answer some kind of more fundamental questions about what that means and, and how that works and how to think about it. And actually that's, that's made me write something, I think, better because it, it was essentially untranslatable. Hmm. But no, the other thing was... The other thing was because I'm pub- uh, you know when I started uh, on Lean Pub, what I would do is I'd publish something and then I'd go back to the first bit and I would change that and republish that you know updated version. But of course, I need the early stuff to be canonical so that the translators don't go, oh, he's changed it. I have to translate that chapter again. That's what I was um, actually going to ask you about that because that's I I ferociously when I write revise old stuff and I was like trying to figure out if if that had impacted what you were doing, like if you if it was making you hesitant to revise your older writing or in the book, or whether you're just going to be like, well, if you're signed up to translate, then this is what you're in for, and here's a... Here's no, what I've done is I've decided that uh, what I'll give the translators is the stuff that I'm 100% on, so mm-hmm. that um, I've published more than I've given to the translators to, to translate, um, but... Uh, 
but I'm I'm 100% happy with it. like the stuff in the first you know at least the first half dozen chapters of the book will not change now okay um, because it, it wouldn't be fair to anybody yeah, exactly. translating it but <laughs> uh, but by the same token the stuff that I've done like I mean I just published uh, a couple of weeks ago and then I when I was doing the audio book uh, I went through and I noticed a whole bunch of mistakes in the in the latest stuff you know typos and stuff and you know little things like a whole chapter missing um, and so I had to go back and go actually. This this version that I published a couple of weeks ago, that isn't right. Let me let me republish another one. But of course, the stuff that I changed hadn't gone to the translators yet. So they're sort of about, I guess, six to eight weeks behind what I'm doing. Hmm. No, that's interesting. It's, it's 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 reminiscent of a lot of things. Like for example, in software, like you know, unit tests are a good thing. But then the more tests you have, then when you make a change that changes what the thing does, you have all this extra work to change the tests, which you know you have to do. But it. There's yeah, the more sort of derivative things that are based on the current reality of what something is, the more inertia or not like you know you have to you have to decide what you've committed to and what you haven't, right? Which makes you yeah makes you think harder about what you're doing. Um, but the, the great thing is, I mean, for for me, uh, the great thing is that this is a really great experimental space, and nobody dies if I mess something up or if I do it wrong or you know I change my mind about something. Um, but like when, when I mean, what you're doing is this kind of uh, iterations of a software service. Mm. Lots and lots of people are using the service, and lots and lots of people are kind of banking their livelihoods on it. So there's a little more pressure on you than there is on me to get it right with each iteration. But like, if I if I publish a version of my book which is nonsense or which, which is wrong or which has got bits missing and all the rest of it, and it just doesn't work as a book, mm. people will people will barely notice. So I've got this kind of freedom to. To try and make it as good as I can possibly make it, but also go, what happens if I do this? What happens if I try this experiment? What happens if I completely change the way I, I price it, for instance? Or, you know, what happens if I ask people to translate it? Can I do that? You know, so it's been a really interesting experimentation with not music, obviously, but a, but a, a creative practice in the, uh, in the digital space that I can kind of take lessons from. And, and in fact, on New Music Strategies, we did a, um, a podcast which was essentially about pricing based mm-hmm. on some experiments Steve and I had both done, Steve with his albums and me with the books, and, and th- thinking about what pricing means you know, in an online environment and how people kind of express what they consider to be value in monetary terms. And you know, you just saying, well, it costs this and that's all it is, um, isn't necessarily the right answer anymore. Right, yeah, you, your books all have... You know, all three of your books have a free minimum price and a fairly low suggested price. Um, can you yeah. go and go into the d- details on what you found so far and what the thinking is? And well, I've 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 tried a few different price points and I've I've tried a few different um, uh, recommended prices as well. I really like the idea that people can get my book for nothing if they want it. You know, it, it's a digital thing. They, they, if they really wanted it for nothing, they could get it for nothing. So I might as well be the person they get it for nothing from. Yeah. Um, but uh, by the same token, I don't want to kind of make a presupposition that my my book has value to anybody. Um, and if it does, great. And if they want to reward that value, fantastic. So this idea of a, a recommended price is kind of cool. But what was really interesting is I, I started with, when I first decided, you know what, I'm going to make it minimum zero. You know, if you want it, just have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it means something to you, you can pay for it. And if you, you know, and if you download it and never look at it, why would you pay for it anyway? So, so zero is cool, and also it means that people who need my book, who need the advice, but actually can't pay for it. I mean, I do a lot of work in uh, South America and 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 countries, you know, in, in India and places where people just don't have money or don't have PayPal accounts, or you know, mm-hmm. and 
for me to say, well, you can't have this unless you give me money is, is sort of cutting out a large proportion of people who could actually find what I do useful in their lives. So, so that was kind of my reason for making it zero. But when I put the, um, the first, I put the recommended price at $5 just to try it out. $5 seems like a kind of a reasonable amount. Mm -hmm. Um, and people didn't really download it. Um, because I think they thought, and this is kind of my, my, my reading of it. They thought that, well, I need to pay $5. I, you know, I've got $5, but this is not really what I want to spend $5 on, or at least I'm not 100% certain that I want to spend $5 on it. So I know that I could get it for free, but, you know, I'm, I'm not going to. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so a lot of people just didn't download it when the price was $5. And I've had some sort of anecdotal uh, evidence of that. So I lowered the recommended price to $199. Now, they could have put $199 yeah, in of right from there. Yeah. But but I put the recommended price at one dollar ninety nine, which is basically a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. uh, or not even that. But um, but what it means is people go, oh, it's only a dollar ninety nine. I'll just you know, it's that sort of uh, impulse purchase app thing that you know, which is what I based it on. It's like a dollar ninety nine is an impulse buy app that you might use for two days and then get bored with. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so people go, oh, it's only a dollar ninety nine. I'll check it out, and then they go there and they go, oh, I can't just give a dollar ninety nine. That's really mean. I'll give five dollars. Right, and so what's actually really what's actually happened is the more I moved the kind of the um, the, the recommended price to the left, the more likely people were to pay more than what the original recommended price was, and so the lower. I mean, I, just, I don't know if this is kind of uh, you know if you put it at one cent, people would pay a hundred dollars. Well, we can't. We actually can't put it. The the floor is either zero or ninety nine cents, right? Because yeah, of course, right. So so you got this uh, PayPal account. So right. So let's. Look, if you're going to pay, I'd, I'd kind of like to get a little bit of it at least. Um, uh, yes. You know, so let's not give it all to PayPal. Right. So let's make it a dollar ninety nine as a recommended price. Uh, you can pay ninety nine cents if you want, but you know, it's just you donating money to PayPal essentially. And that's why we uh, put the, the royalty slider there, right? Is to show people what you're getting. Is because we're trying to, like, show. Yeah. Look, you drag it to the right and look how much better it is for the author. You know, looking yeah. at yeah, for sure, because because it, it is that sort of percentage plus fifty cents sort of yeah. thing, um, which you know you can do the math visually by moving the slider around, but. Um, but it's really interesting. The number of people who, since I put this, the the recommended price down to one dollar ninety nine, have paid ten dollars mm-hmm. has been really interesting. Nobody paid ten dollars when it was recommended five. The people who did pay paid five. Yeah, exactly. Um, if, if you're asking for something, then there's less opportunity to be generous. Then exactly. Can, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and I think that if you if you cater to people's generosity, that um, that, that's a really interesting. You know, situation to be in. But the other thing that I do is, is if people want to come back and pay for it, that's cool too. And I sort of encourage that in the book that, that if you sort of start from the basis of pay what it's worth, you, you're not going to know what it's worth until you read it. Right. And so you have this thing on your website. Yeah. So if you want to come back and pay me, it's on the website. In fact, I've got a thing now on my website. There's the slider there, of course. But I've also put, you know, what? Here's my Amazon wish list. If you'd rather just buy me something nice, that's cool too. And so you sort of got this opportunity to indulge people's enthusiasms and indulge their generosity. And I've had like I, I had a, a couple who um, produced music in the states came to my website, moved the slider around, ended up at seventy five dollars. Gave me that, nice. and and ended up getting a Skype call out of it. And we chatted, and I gave them, you know did the consultancy with them, and uh, and that was really cool. But this this sort of thing where uh, you don't get to dis- you know what my book is worth is not up to me as far as I'm concerned. As as a piece, as a kind of a cultural text, if you like, it's only valuable to the extent that it's meaningful to people. Right. And so th- this is an opportunity to experiment with what does that translate to in, in terms of uh, you know an economic transaction. Yeah, actually, we're, we're thinking around like 
we've had a couple of people say like, hey, I'd like to be able to come to the LeanPub and pay more for the purchase afterward. And so you've obviously just provided that functionality yourself, but um, this is one thing we're thinking of doing. We've had people ask us to be able to let us do that. Um, and also- Because I could just buy it again, but that's yeah, not exactly. But people don't yeah. want to do that. It's weird. People want to, we've had people say, I want to be able to modify my purchase so that I paid more instead of like, yeah, just buying their copy. You know, it is because because it's a discursive thing. It's a it's a it's a statement. It yeah, isn't. Because, exactly. and, and the other thing that people don't want to do, they don't want to donate. Yeah, you no, know, they, they want to buy the thing for. They bought. want to buy the book, but they want to they want to have bought it for more after the fact. Yeah, and also uh, they and want so, to let, so, some people want to like let the author know who they are. Right? Is that something that you'd be interested? Like, we've had some authors for sure. I mean, some some authors. Will be interested from the from the sake of well, if you if you let me know who they are, then I can market to them. I can sell them other stuff. I can you know they yeah. can be on my mailing list, and I'm kind of less interested in that. But I actually just want to be able to say thank you to people, you know, right. to say you know I'm really glad you found that interesting. But at the at the moment, people who want to can you know they can drop me a note on on yeah you know, I'm sort of the most findable guy on the planet. They can go through my website, they can catch me on Twitter, they can you know send me a message and go hey I got your book. But like I, I find myself going hey somebody just paid ten dollars for my book whoever that was thanks a lot that was really cool yeah um, and i'd really love to be able to do that in person and so from that perspective i think it's not about knowing who they are but actually being able to go um to, to sort of make an individual uh piece of communication just to say thanks that's awesome huh yeah i mean we were thinking like well so for us we're like and I'm, I'm doing customer development here like i'm trying to figure out i think there's some feature here that like we've had a couple ideas and i'm trying to get a sense from your take on it um We've had some authors who want to see names of everyone, and we're like, well, we want to keep the purchase form simple so that people don't have to think about how social they're being when they click the button that buys the thing, right? But then, Yeah, and, after- and also, by the same token, every time you go into a shop, you don't want to tell the, the person your name that you're buying. You know, you, no, you're buying. or else you go to Ikea and they ask for your, your postal code, and it's like, it's like, no, I don't want to right now. But, um, but the flip side is I can see after the fact, like people wanting to let the author know either who they are like name or name and email or well my look my contact details are in in the book right if people want to let me know who they are they can let me know who they are um but i just think at that point of transaction to have something that's a little more than just a um uh a, a kind of a, a standard automated response hi thanks for purchasing that mm-hmm. you know it's that's meaningless but if uh, you know if i cuz i get these email notifications from you guys that say somebody just bought your book we're not telling you who but somebody just bought your book for for x amount to have a link on that that says thank this person and that would be really nice yeah that would be really cool so you so i could actually type a and you know hey thanks very much for checking it out if you want to you know here's some information about me um be glad to hear what you think of it etc to have that as a as a real person interaction rather than just an automated response i think it would be really cool and if we did that like, would you be fine with that? Like, like even if we kept the thing right now where we don't share emails, you could just send them a message, and we. Can no, I actually prefer that. Be, yeah, we can make the reply to be from you. Like, I want to, you know, like we had that thing the other day where someone sent. Like, occasionally people have sent us emails, like thinking they're emailing you, and so yep. where we we could do something where we like set the reply to header of our email be like you, and for so sure. you could send someone an email saying, "Hey, thanks a lot for buying my book. It's really generous," and it would like. Come from LeanPub, but it'd be like reply to Andrew Dubber. Yep. Yeah, okay, I, that's I, actually I, a good feature. I like that. I, I would be more happy that. with that than you telling me the name and address and you know contact details. Right. Because I mean, from a privacy perspective, I, I know, uh, we don't know. That's why we're not doing it. Like, yeah, we, it would have to be opt in, and if it's going to be opt in, it has to be after the fact, so we don't clutter up the buy button, right? Yep. But and I, and 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 
you know, it's like just because you want something that like like some of the authors, like one of the author, you know, people who well, I want this information. It's like, well, yes, you do, but you'll also sell a lot less, and you don't want that. And also, as a reader, I don't want to provide that if I'm just trying to like buy something anonymously and read it. Well, so, that was one of the kind of the, the the central statements of the the Twenty Things book, which was you know fewer clicks. Mm-hmm. You want people to give you money, get out of their way. Yeah, exactly. Okay, no, but I like this. I like this idea of. I like that idea a lot. Um, I think we should we should look into that closely. Um, just a couple more things. I think so. You've done a lot of different things, obviously, on LeanPub. What's surprised you the most about using LeanPub so far? Uh, you guys, just how how responsive you are, how helpful you are. Every time I've got a problem, like I've got a you know the translation thing is causing you guys headaches. Yeah, Hebrew. <laughs> Holy crap! It's like right, really, we've hit this point already in our lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's uh I mean that that's the thing to to actually go to a um a, an online startup service that provides something that's so incredibly useful and you go I've got a problem with this and the guy who coded it says well let me help you with that that's awesome you know and I think for me that's been the biggest surprise and the biggest delight actually from working with LeanPub is is, is you and Scott just kind of getting it right in terms of having conversations like human beings nice well that's really nice to hear thank you um, is there anything that you wish like is high on your list of what we could improve or fix? Uh, yeah. Well, from, it would only really benefit me. It's the sort of uh, the Hebrew translations kind of cause me all sorts of issues because it's right aligned and it doesn't play very well with Markdown language and uh, and that sort of stuff. So figuring out a solution to that's kind of top of my list at the moment. It was probably top of nobody else's. <laughs> I think you're about right on that. <laughs> um. Well, I think no, we've. Well, this has been very interesting for me, um, Andrew. Thank you very much for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. No problem at all. Look, if you ever want anything from me, just give us a shout. Thanks.